Well, good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team, and I want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here as well. Uh, man, that's a, that's a heavy thing to read, isn't it? The crucifixion of the Son of God, the true King. Everything about that, if we could actually see it with our eyes, uh, would make us want to look away, right? There's times in life when, when you ought to look away, right? I don't know if, if you enjoyed watching the Super Bowl last week. It's hard to believe that was just a week ago, right? Pretty good game. That was nice. Uh, if you went to high school in the 90s like I did, you were pretty happy with the Super Bowl uh, halftime show. It was pretty great. I thought it was wonderful. Um, and then uh, there's the commercials, and overall pretty good commercials. But there were times throughout the whole thing uh, when we were telling our five- and seven-year-old, Hank and Mary, we were saying, hey, uh, close your eyes, cover your eyes, <laughs> cover your eyes, right, during the... the, the the uh, 50 cent part of the halftime show is like, cover your eyes, cover your eyes. And uh, during certain commercials, especially like uh, trailers that are real intense and real violent, it's like, hey, cover your eyes, cover your eyes. And today's story makes us want to cover our eyes. If we were to actually see this in a movie, it would have warnings for disturbing content. When this was most accurately portrayed in film, in The Passion of the Christ, it was rated R. And so there's a lot about this that makes you want to look away, and I want to just encourage you today, don't look away. Don't avert your gaze. Keep looking. Now this maybe is a story that you've heard of. Maybe you know about that Jesus died on a cross. Maybe this is actually the first time you've ever really looked at what happened. Or maybe you're someone who's very familiar with this. You kind of understand uh, the gospel. You understand the crucifixion. You've heard this sort of stuff before. Wherever you are, here's what I want to invite you to do today is to look closer. I wonder what you might see if you look closer. When I was in college, I went to the University of Illinois, uh, part of the Big Ten Conference, and uh, there was one day, I think I was a sophomore or junior, so I was a couple years into uh, playing for Illinois, playing baseball, and I'm out there in the outfield one day, we're stretching before practice, and I look up at the scoreboard, and I see the Big Ten logo, and all of a sudden, I see something I have never noticed before. Uh, take a look at the Big Ten logo. See if you maybe notice any secret images in there. Can you see it? So I'm stretching, and I'm looking at the Big Ten logo, and I'm like, guys, time out. Stop stretching. Have any of you noticed this before? There's an 11 in the middle of the Big Ten conference logo. And they're all like, are you nuts? How did you not see that? And the reality was the Big Ten at the time had 11 teams. Now there's like 100 teams in the Big Ten. It doesn't even make sense. Uh, but there were 11 schools in the Big Ten. And so they figured out a way to put an 11 in there. And it took me years. This is how stupid I am, I guess. It took me years to notice it. But sometimes you can be so familiar with something that you actually don't see it. Maybe you're familiar with this story of Jesus crucified, the Son of God crucified in John 19. But don't look away. Look closer. There's a word that shows up again and again in those 27 verses that we read. It's the word, behold, behold. Pilate says, behold your king, behold. That word behold means look, see, pay attention, take notice. And that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to look at Jesus. And as we look at what happens to Jesus in John chapter 19, I think this is going to be a kind of display where God is trying to display a few important realities that he wants us to see. Um, let's pray together. Uh, take a minute with me and let's pray. 
Let's ask God that he would help us see. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we could see Christ. Not just see what happens to him, but see what it means. And not what it means just in generally, but see what it means for us specifically. Lord, so often in your ministry, you were opening the eyes of the blind. And that obviously was a huge blessing for them, but God, it it pictures what I think you want to do for us, that you want to open our blind eyes, our blind hearts. And so we pray that just as, Lord, at creation, you said, let there be light, and there was light, that you would say again into our hearts in this moment, let there be light, that we could see who we are, who you are, and what the cross really means. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What do we see when we look at the cross? That's what we're exploring today. Here's the first display that we see, is that the cross displays the evil of humanity. The cross displays the evil of humanity. Uh, When I was in seventh grade, um, it was kind of an interesting time for me. Both my parents were teachers. I'm an only child. Um, which explains a lot to some of you, uh, if you know me. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that means, but people go, oh, I get it. Okay, I I guess. Um, So I was in seventh grade. My dad taught sixth grade. My mom taught eighth grade. And they taught at the same school, but a different school than I went to. And so most of the time, our schedules were aligned. But there was this one day when I was in seventh grade where I didn't have school for whatever reason, and my parents did. And they said, we're not letting our seventh grade boy uh, stay home alone. And uh, so it was like, well, why don't you come to school with us? And so somehow, and I think this is actually my mom's idea, she said, "Um, how about we do this? How about you come to my classes, my eighth grade classes, and we'll just tell everyone that you're a new student? That we won't tell them about, you know, our relationship until the end of the day. And I'm like, that sounds actually like the only way you could get me to want to go to that school for a day, right? Like, I have a day off. I don't want to go to that school. But anyway, so I go, so I go there, and uh, she, sure enough, she introduced, hey, this is Luke. He's a new kid in, in our class. Uh, you know, just kind of help him today. He's new. He's just kind of getting a feel for things. Well, it's like within 30 or 40 minutes of me being introduced and me being new that I'm sitting back there and there's this girl kind of in the back next to where I'm sitting and she's like, so do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you have sex? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? And I'm like, oh man, this is interesting. And then I, you know, at some point I'm kind of going like, hey, tell me, what do you think of Mrs. Simmons? And it's like, she's the worst. I hate her. She always says this and she does this and man, 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 man. And it's like, and there were a couple other kids that over the course of the day let me know like how bad I was going to have it as a new student in Mrs. Simmons' class because she's the worst. And so you can then imagine at the end of the day when Mrs. Simmons stands up and is like, all right, everybody, I want you to know that actually Luke is my son. <laughs> and these people, I mean, they looked like they had seen ghosts. It was like horrifying, right? And the, the, the true colors of what they really thought came out, right? If she had introduced me at the beginning of the day, hey, this is Luke, he's my son, I wouldn't have heard all that. I would have heard, oh, Mrs. Simmons is the greatest, and she's so nice, and she's so wonderful. Or I would have heard nothing, but I definitely wouldn't have heard what I heard. And in the same way, Jesus comes undercover. He looks really ordinary. He's from Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? 
He's a carpenter. He's not through all the trained rabbinical schools. He's not part of the religious pedigree. He's just sort of undercover. And what we see in this passage is that the the display of the evil of humanity comes out. The reality of what humanity really thinks when God shows up is on display. Two times, Pilate, who is the governor, the Roman governor over this province, who's supposed to be committed to justice, committed to what's right, committed to what's good, over and over, he says this. Two times, he says in verse 4 and verse 6, I find no guilt in him. Pilate went out, verse 4, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate says, I don't see anything wrong. He hasn't done anything. He doesn't deserve to be crucified. But the evil of humanity starts to compromise even with what's true. We saw a few weeks ago, Pilate says, well, what's truth? Because see, once Pilate's interests start being at play, once there's a threat of, hey, if you let this guy go, you're no friend of Caesar's. And now the politics become in play and the power and Pilate's grasp of power and wealth and influence and control starts to be threatened. All of a sudden, he'll turn on Jesus. You also see the evil of humanity in verses 2 and 3. Look at how these Roman soldiers treat Jesus. They twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. God Almighty shows up. The God who spoke this world into existence. The one Hebrews tells us who upholds the universe with the word of his power, who gives these people the breath in their lungs to mock him with. And that's what humanity does. God shows up. We're not interested. Now you go, well, they're clearly the irreligious folks. I mean, they're the Romans, they're the Gentiles, they're the, you know, the the pagans. So we don't expect much of Pilate and we don't expect much of these Roman soldiers. I mean, they aren't God's people. They're the irreligious folks. And so a lot of us think, well, you know, I know humanity is evil, but that's really just the irreligious people. This passage actually helps us see, no, 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 it's the religious people too. Do you see what the chief priests say about Jesus? Pilate comes to them in verse 14, says, Behold your king. And they cry out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the most religious people, the senior pastors, the executive leadership team of the Jerusalem religious establishment, what do they say? When God shows up, when the king actually arrives, what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. That is stunning. The Jews hated being under Roman occupation. They hated Caesar. They had been praying. They had been longing. They had been hoping that someone, a Messiah, Messiah, uh, an anointed one, would rise up who would overthrow the Roman government, who would bring real freedom. And then a Messiah comes. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. They reject the rulership of God. They reject any hope 
of a Messiah. See, as humanity, we are evil. That's what evil is. When God shows up and we go, no thanks. What if God showed up in your life now? Would you want it? Would you want him? Or are you just okay going through the religious motions as long as it means that you're still basically in control of your life and you still basically have your own little kingdom and you still basically have all of your money and all of your status and all of your comfort and all of your preferences? And as long as you have that, you can worship God. But if God starts to say, you know what, I actually want to take some of that away. I actually think you're leaning on some of that other stuff a little too much. And we start to go, no! What do you do when God shows up? Well, what they do is reject him. Scholar Tom Wright says this. He says, the greatest legal system of the ancient world, that's Rome, and its noblest religion, that's Judaism, come together in the center of the world as Jerusalem was long supposed and at the center of history. Together they blunder and stumble into an act so wicked, so unjust, so unnecessary, and so indicative of their own moral bankruptcy that before anything more is said, we can already draw the correct conclusion. The man at the center of this storm was indeed dying for the sins of the world. Cross displays our our evil, our proclivity to reject God, put ourselves on the throne. Now, none of this is a surprise to God, and so this passage also displays to us, number two, the sovereignty of God. The cross displays the sovereignty of God. Jesus is not helpless. Jesus is not hapless. Jesus is not going, oh no, I'm just a victim being carried along by the evil of humanity, but rather, he knows throughout this whole process that God is sovereign, that God is doing something through it. And each of these little acts against him, each of these things that are being done to him in themselves are wicked, and yet through it, God is displaying something beautiful. I'm going uh, tonight. I leave uh, just before midnight with a a handful of leaders from uh, Redemption Gateway. Uh, We're taking a trip to uh, Turkey and to Moldova. We're going to visit some of our uh, pastors and church planners that we have partnership and connection with. Uh, It's been a really intense couple of years, obviously, for everybody uh, through the pandemic, but these folks that we're connected with have also experienced some pretty significant persecution. Um, And so we're going to go, and we're just going to try to encourage them and pray for them and build relationship and uh, build connection, and I think it's going to be really a lot of fun. But the travel there is going to be brutal. We're we're leaving, it's weird, we're leaving tonight, just before midnight, we arrive in Istanbul, 6.30 a.m. Tuesday morning, just because of how all the time works and everything, I mean, it's just weird. And so, you know, you arrive on a trip real early, you go, all right, we're going to have to stay busy or, for the day, or we're just going to be kind of in trouble. So for that first day, we're just going to kind of get a lot of our sightseeing stuff out of the way. And one of the things I know we'll see that first day is we'll go to the Hagia Sophia. It's this, uh, it's just this, I think it was determined to be kind of an architectural wonder of the ancient world. It was built in the fifth century. Uh, you could play an NFL football game in there and have a pretty good crowd. I mean, it is huge, and it's stunning, and it's spectacular. I think uh, the, the emperor who had it built, uh, when he first walked in and they dedicated it, you know, kind of said, hey, Solomon, take that. You know, like, this is kind of how nice it is. 
And, um, and so they had all these mosaics of all these different scenes depicting uh, different parts of church, uh, of, of Christian history. And so uh, some of these mosaics are there. And when you look at these mosaics, what you see is like each individual piece of a mosaic isn't necessarily that attractive. They're kind of beat up. They're kind of ugly. They're kind of misshapen. But the artistry of, of whoever put these together makes it where when you actually zoom out and you go, oh, wow, there's something beautiful here. There's this, there's this beautiful image coming. And that's what I want you to see is happening here. Through the betrayal, through the rejection, through the suffering, through the challenges, through all of these individual sufferings of Jesus, God is on the throne. God is creating a beautiful story. Lest we think Jesus is just a victim, pay attention to verse 11. Pilate just before this says, uh, hey, you're not going to talk to me? Don't you know I have the authority here? Jesus says this, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus goes, hey, listen, bub, you want to talk about authority? Yeah, you have authority, but it all comes from my heavenly father. (laughs) I'm not worried about you. I'm not being carried along by your desires here. I'm, I'm part of a bigger story. In verse 24, we see that even the, the, uh, you know, gambling over his clothes in verse 24 is all just part of fulfilling the scripture. They say, here's this garment, it's, you know, got this one seam. Normally they would kind of divvy up the clothes, they would rip them at the seams. Well, this one garment has no seam, so they go, well, then I guess we're going to, you know, rock, paper, scissors for it kind of a thing. It says verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is all fulfilling the scripture. This is all part of God's sovereign plan. And notice the irony dripping over and over and over as Pilate says, this is the king of the Jews. What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? As he even then in three different languages writes on the thing, this is the king of the Jews. And they come back and say, could you have it not say this is the king of the Jews, but could you have it say he just said he's the king of the Jews? I mean, over and over and over, king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. What is John trying to say here? That no matter what you do to Jesus, he is the king of the Jews. He is the king. Nothing you can do can stop him. Even if you crucify him, you're accomplishing his purposes. Because God is sovereign. I love how Dr. Tony Evans says it. He says, our God is sovereign. That means there is no such thing as luck. Anything that happens to you, good or bad, must pass through his fingers first. There are no accidents with God. Jesus was not crucified on accident. Jesus did not suffer on accident. And let me tell you this, and neither do you. You're not here by accident. You didn't move to Arizona by accident. You're not going through the different trials in your relationships and in your family on accident. You didn't get that diagnosis on accident. You didn't suffer that loss on accident. And you might say, well, why did it happen? What's God doing? And I'm not here to tell you that I know the answer. But what I do know is that God is creating a mosaic. And he's taking all these little painful, ugly bits. And he's writing a bigger story. And he has purposes in it. And someday when he's wiping away every tear from our eyes, we'll say, okay, Lord, 
I get it. And it was worth it. And we need to remember this, friends. This is what we sang a moment ago. Though the wrong is oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. How many of us are, are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and worry and stress because all we can think about is that though the wrong is off so strong and our song ends there. If it ends there, you should be worried because the wrong is off so strong and it ain't getting better. I mean, it's even like, I was asking a guy today, I'm like, hey, do you think there's gonna be a Major League Baseball season? All right, because they're all, and I'm like, we can't even get baseball right. Like, we're, we are so screwed up. The wrong is off so strong. Like, I mean, if given a choice between doing it the smart way and doing it the worst way, what are we going to pick? Humanity? Worst way. And listen, if that's all you think about, if that's where you focus your heart on, there's enough wrong that's really wrong, much bigger than baseball. It'll overwhelm your heart. But if you are able to go, but God is the ruler yet. Everything's got to pass through his fingers. There are no accidents with God. For Jesus, for you. This shows us the evil of humanity. It shows us the sovereignty of God. And third, the cross displays the love of Jesus. If there's anything we should see in this story, it is the love of Jesus. And I want to look at the love of Jesus uh, kind of at a wide-angle lens, and then I want to zoom in and look at a close-up of the love of Jesus. So first, the wide-angle lens of the love of Jesus. This whole scene is showing us the love of Jesus for us by what he endures. Notice all the things that he endures. And this is where you want to look away. Chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We can just breeze right over that verse and kind of miss what's going on, but if you do any kind of research into what was happening in the way Rome punished people and flogged them before they were crucified, what you find is this. The prisoner would be lashed, usually to a pole, and then the soldiers would get a whip, and at the end of the whip would be pieces of bone and pieces of rock, little pieces of metal tied to the end of the strands and they'd whip and then pull over and over and over. Sometimes people would die from the flogging. But as we'll see in a moment, crucifixion was such a excruciating, that's actually where we get that word, excruciating. So crossifying was so bad that oftentimes uh, it would take days to die. The flogging would speed it up. So he's flogged for us. Then look at the mocking again, the crown of thorns, the purple robe. We can maybe imagine, I mean, you sort of imagine, get, get, get a mesquite branch or something with its, with its thorns or cut off a piece of barbed wire and you assemble it into a crown and you could kind of imagine maybe like for just a second to see what it was like resting it on your head. Maybe you could endure that. But that's not what happened to Jesus. They put this crown of thorns and they smashed it on his head and they struck him and they hit him. And everything he does from this point on, he's wearing that thing. Blood dripping in his eyes, getting in his eyebrows, getting in his face. Mocked with the purple robe, the robe of royalty draped over his thrashed back. 
Hail, King of the Jews. We've seen this in verse 15. Then he's rejected by his people. So it's not just the physical agony, but it's the rejection. There he is. This, get this. Jesus is God. He says in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. In the beginning, John 1, was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things were made through him, and nothing was made that he didn't make. In other words, Jesus was there from the beginning, speaking all things into existence. He was the one who, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3 that we looked at last week, he was the one that covered them with the skins of the animal. Jesus was the one who called Abraham and said, you're going to be my guy. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He was there with his people, delivering them in the showdown between him and the gods of Egypt, showing that he is God and those gods are not. He gave his people a promised land. He nurtured them with his word and with his law and with his promises. And over and over, he provides for people who are ungrateful and unholy, and he keeps being good to them. He's forgiving. He's covenant-keeping. And he's promising, and he's saying, someday I'm coming. Someday I'm coming. Someday I'm coming. And they're waiting and they're praying and they're hoping and they've endured exile and now they're back in the land and they are excited about God coming. And then God comes and they say, we have no king but Caesar. Just think about the heartbreak. I'm going to be gone for almost two weeks. I've been this trip. I imagine sort of the, the way I'll feel as the plane's about to land coming home. Oh, I can't wait to... Already I'm excited to be able to hug Molly and squeeze her. And I just sort of imagine that she leaves me at the airport. <laughs> like the heartbreak of that. Whatever that is, time's infinite. Then Jesus bears his own cross. We see that in verse 17. He's got his hurt, injured, torn up back, and he's carrying this cross beam. And there it says in verse 18, they crucified. And maybe you've never thought about this, but do you know how people die through crucifixion? What actually kills you in crucifixion? It's not the nails. It's not the thorns. It's suffocation. You actually die because you don't have breath. What happens is as they, as they put the cross beam up, oftentimes what would happen is your shoulders would dislocate. And they would have a little platform there for your feet, which were nailed in with a kind of big stake and through your wrists. And so each time, in order to get a breath, you'd have to pull yourself up with separated dislocated shoulders and a back that's been torn apart by flogging pushing yourself up for every breath. Sometimes it would go on for days. It's why at this story, what we'll see, I think, next week is that because the Passover is coming, they don't want these guys to be up there dying for days. They go ahead and break their legs. Because if you broke their legs, then you couldn't get a breath. You would just suffocate. And there Jesus is, suffocating, 
in anguish and in agony. And don't miss this, and also in shame. Look at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. You know what that means, right? He was naked. It's probably appropriate that you've never seen a crucifix where Jesus was naked. It's probably good that he's covered up, but make no mistake. The God of all creation, the King of the Jews, was crucified in shame outside the city. The people that invented crucifixion thought, what can we do? What's every last bit that we can do to strip someone of any kind of dignity? And that's what Jesus did. And he did it, Romans 5.8 says, for love for us. Look at what it says in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still shouting crucify him, while we were still saying we have no king but our comfort, we have no king but our money, we have no king but ourselves, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? To show his love. That word show is to display, to highlight, to showcase. Here's the showcase that God wants you to see through the cross is that he loves you. He loves us. God so loved the world, John said in John 3, that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe wouldn't perish but have eternal life. He loves us. That's the wide angle, but now let's zoom in. Because when we zoom in, we see another display of the love of Jesus, and that is his love for specific people, even in the midst of his suffering. Look at what it says in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's how John talks about himself, kind of in the third person, so he sees his mom, he sees John, and he says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Think about this. Every time Jesus talks, he's got to push up and get some breath. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. What's he doing? What he's doing there is he's saying, Mom, John's going to take care of you. John, take care of my mom. Tradition has it that Mary was taken in by the apostle John. John eventually became uh, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And uh, one of the things we'll uh, decide whether we want to do on our trip to Turkey is decide whether we want to go to the historic place that they think maybe. Mary lived with John because this happened, this took place. But in this story, what we see is Jesus' love, not just in general, but specifically. In the midst of his suffering, of his agony, he's thinking about her agony. Think about the agony of Mary. Right there she is. She's standing by the cross watching her little boy 
The one who she first kissed his forehead and now it's pierced with thorns. She's the one that would take his little legs and move them and say, oh, you're running fast, buddy. And she'd take his little baby hands and clap them. Now she's looking at those hands and she's looking at those feet. Have you ever looked at the cross through the eyes of a mother? Oh, she just wants to hug him and she just wants to hold him and she just wants to stroke his head and give him a kiss and tell him it'll be okay and get him something to drink because he's so thirsty. And she can't do it. And amazingly, she doesn't collapse, she doesn't faint. She stands. And in that moment, Jesus is thinking of her. Listen, those of you who have adult sons, you can't even get them to call you. <laughs> My mom was at the last service. I was like, Mom, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> Jesus loved his mom better than I love you. Jesus is better than your son. Hopefully you already knew that. <laughs> but but here's, here's what I want you to, to just see, though, is that in Jesus' suffering, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was still loving people then in that moment. And so here's what I want you to see. It's not just that Jesus loves us, but that Jesus loves you. That he sees you in your pain. He sees you in your suffering. He sees you in your questions. He sees you in your doubts. He sees you in all these sins that you've done and all the sins that have been done to you. And he sees you. And he knows you. And he cares about you. He doesn't just care about the world. He cares about you. That's the love of Jesus on display. And so the last display that this leaves us with, the cross displays finally the choice before us. The cross displays a choice. What will you do? Will you reject Jesus or will you stand with Jesus? And you can reject him a few different ways, right? You can go the real hostile route of the chief priest. Crucify him, crucify him. I hate this guy. No king, but it, you know, you can do that. Real angry. Or you can be more dignified about it, like Pilate, well, you know, technically I have analyzed everything and I don't see any problem with him, but I'm not really all in. Either way, it's rejecting. Or, verse 25, you can stand by the cross, looking to Jesus, receiving the love of Jesus, receiving the protection of Jesus, receiving the care of Jesus. It's your choice. This man did not die for nothing. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. He's the king of kings. And he did this for us. Let's pray. Father, what love you've shown us. Well, the depth of the riches of your love. God, help us to see how high and how deep how long, how wide is this love that's beyond our understanding? And Lord, I pray that we would receive it. That we wouldn't think we got to earn it. We wouldn't think we got to pay it back. We wouldn't think we got to 
do anything other than just receive it and to trust you and to believe that when you died for us, you died for us. God, help us to receive you and to walk with you and to put you on display. You know, you're worthy of it. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.